Hello, and welcome to this IBR Business Profile, a podcast from the Iowa Business Report. I'm Jeff Stein. In the 33rd edition of our program, which aired during the third weekend of August 2020, we introduced you to Kirk Tyler, the third generation to operate the Atlantic Coca-Cola Bottling Company. It's a fascinating story of perseverance, taking advantage of opportunity, and maintaining open communication to allow for proper generational succession and good family relations for more than a century. Well, Jeff, it's a lot of fun to share our story because uh, it starts 111 years ago, 1909, down in Villisca, Iowa. And my grandfather, Harry, and his brother, Henry, started our business, Tyler Brothers, and we were actually in the ice and the ice cream business. And we had our own line of soda flavors. We had about 18 different kinds of soda flavors, orange grape, strawberry, root beer, cream soda, ginger beer, ginger ale, all those kind of things. And then the ice cream business. And the ice cream business got to be so good. In 1912, they bought a creamery down in Clarenda, Iowa, which is just south of Villisca. And uh, they were going through the warehouse of the creamery and they found a safe and they opened up the safe and lo and behold, here's a franchise for Coca-Cola in the safe. And back in 1912, nobody really up in this part of the country knew what Coca-Cola was because it started in 1886 down in Atlanta. We started making some Coca-Cola and we actually had to make some. And then we'd put a couple bottles of Coke in with the case of orange or whatever other flavors they had, just to get people to try it. Then people would take the Coke out and say, no, I want my soda flavors. But it grew and grew, and pretty soon they were pretty good in the soft drink business. And uh, in the late 20s, they sold the ice cream business to Metal Gold at the time. They got half in cash and half in stock. And a good thing we got half in cash because in the late 20s, you know what happened in 1929? everything went bust and they actually got about half of what they thought they were going to get for the business. Side note on the ice cream business is they had a, a Felisca was a very transient town at the time because the railroad went through there. And so an Hispanic family had settled in Villisca. The father worked on the railroad and there was four boys and a girl in the family. And the four boys worked in the creamery with my grandfather. They became really good at the business and then the mother and the father passed away and the family decided they were going to move back to Mexico. And so the boys asked my grandfather if they could take the Tyler brothers recipe for ice cream to Mexico with them and try and make it. And uh, so they did, my, you know, back in the late twenties, my father's grandfather said, go ahead, knock yourselves out. And so they took the recipe back to Mexico with them and, and they settled in a small town called Monterey, which I believe today is about eight or nine million people. And up until just a few years ago, with the name Leela Ice Cream, they had about a 65% share of the ice cream market in Monterey. And uh, unfortunately, we don't uh, get any royalties, but uh, we still remain family friends with the, the family and their kids still socialize with our kids on social media. And it's just a a lot of fun family tradition. That is such a wonderful aspect of the story. You're rewarding loyal employees who, yeah. because of family situation, want to go do something else. And so you do them a favor and it winds up being immensely successful for them. 
But I love the part about these add-ons or throw-ins. Sometimes you make a business deal and you just don't know what gets thrown in. A Coca-Cola recipe gets thrown in and that becomes your (laughs) primary business. That's right. It was just a lot. Of, and they were very successful until a few years ago when the, when the crime and the drugs got so bad in Monterey that they almost literally couldn't leave their house. And so the business has gone down quite a bit since then. And very unfortunate, but it's a lot of fun. So they progressed in the soft drink business for quite some time. And fast forward to the late 40s, at the time the family had plants in Atlantic, Creston, Shenandoah, and Grand Island, Nebraska. And an estate planner came to my grandfather and his brother and said, this business is getting too big for one family. You need to divide it up. And fortunately, all four plants were valued about the same amount. Fortunately for us, my grandfather and his brother got along very well. So they literally drew straws to see who would get which two plants. And our side of the family drew the long straws and we got Atlantic and Creston. So we operated those two plants for quite a number of years. Fast forward to the uh, mid-70s, my father and and my grandfather got a call from the Coca-Cola company, a man by the name of Don Keogh, who was president of the company at the time, called him up, and he's originally from Sioux City area, so they knew Mr. Keogh, and he called him and said, say, we'd like you to consider purchasing the Des Moines Coke franchise which at the time in the mid-70s was one of the two worst Coke plants in the country, as Des Moines and Buffalo, New York. Des Moines had had a series of about 12 owners in about 15 years, and everybody took money out of the business, didn't put anything back. So it was really run down. And we were tired of having people come to Des Moines from Atlantic and come back to Atlantic and say, geez, we tried to find a Coke and couldn't find one. And so very fortunate for me, one of the requirements for them buying the Des Moines franchise was one of them was going to have to move to Des Moines. And they were both small town guys. And they said, well, if that's part of the deal, we're not interested in it. But we know somebody who would be interested in living in Des Moines in a few years. And that was me. So I was very fortunate that they took the opportunity to buy the Des Moines franchise because probably if they hadn't taken that chance back then, we probably wouldn't be a business because we would have been so small. We just wouldn't been able to operate with the scale. So we operated in the Des Moines franchise, built it up. At the time we bought it, we were getting outsold by our primary competitor about eight or nine to one. Today we get outsold, uh, just depends on what part of town, but overall uh, they sell three, we sell two. So we've made a lot of progress there, built it up. We've operated that way for many number of years and fast forward to uh, about 2014, The Coca-Cola company had been consolidating. They'd been buying up and consolidating smaller bottlers such as ourselves that were wanting to sell out because of family issues or problems or no errors or anything that they had. So at one time, they owned about 80% of the volume in the country. Probably about 2012, there was a new CEO that came into the Coca-Cola company and realized that they weren't very good at operating Coke plants. They could market the product and sell us concentrate very well, but couldn't operate a bottling plant. We had heard a rumor that maybe they were going to refranchise some of the territories. So in April of 14, my father and I took a trip down to Atlanta and met with a few folks and told them we didn't know what the process or the protocol was. We didn't know if it was true, but if it was true, we wanted to be part of the system of the future. And so they talked to us and uh, we showed them a little map and 
we wanted a little more territory. And at the end of the meeting, they said, you fellows might think a little bit bigger. And so uh, August of 2015, they came back to us and said, here's the territory that we would like you to consider. And it was most of the state of Iowa, excluding far western Iowa. And then we had a little bit of Wisconsin, a little bit of Minnesota, a little bit of Illinois, and a little bit of Missouri. And we were, wow, we don't know if we want to take that on. But we talked about it, and our family talked about it quite a bit. And really, we decided, you know, if we can make a difference in those territories, we should do this. And uh, it was fortunate that my father and grandfather took the chance on the Des Moines franchise. And if we don't take the chance on this franchise, uh, is it fair to the next generation? So we had a lot of family discussions. So probably about three times a day, we'd go back and forth. Yeah, let's do it. No, let's don't do it. Yeah, let's do it. Oh, we're comfortable. Let's don't do it. Anyway, we decided we could make a difference. And on October 1st of 2016, we went from uh, two facilities to nine facilities. We went from uh, 200 employees to 800 employees. And uh, it's been a great ride. Uh, It seems like a real quick almost four years now. When you are taking over one of these other plants, whether it was 45, 50 years ago in Des Moines or just a few years ago throughout the Midwest, what's the first step you take? Is it a matter of creating a workplace culture? Is it a matter of figuring out what they're doing that isn't working? Because, again, with a brand name like Coca-Cola and all of the other products, you have to have exacting standards so that the Coke I drink here is the same one somebody else drinks somewhere else or else the whole national franchise can fail. So that's a whole lot of different levels you have to examine, isn't it? Yeah, we had a lot of really good people uh, working on the project with the help of the Coca-Cola company. But I'll tell you a quick story that kind of answers that question. Uh, A year into the transition, I was over in the Quad Cities and doing a sales meeting. At the end of the meetings, I always ask them, okay, whatever, whatever questions you have for Kirk, let me have them. I don't care what it is, just let me have them. Everybody's a little tentative. And finally, somebody spoke up and said, uh, what's been the biggest surprise for you? And I quickly responded. I said, that one's an easy one. I said, it's been the people. I said, quite frankly, we used to make fun of you guys because you were so bad. You couldn't operate. You, you didn't service the people. And they looked at me like, this guy's a real jerk. And then I said, but what we found out was when we came out and talked to you, you were really dedicated people. You just hadn't had any autonomy. You didn't have any decision-making power. You couldn't make a decision. But now we've come in and said, okay, the GM in Ames, you're running the place. We'll tell you how the Tyler family wants things done, but then it's up to you to execute it. You make the decisions. If a truck needs repaired, you decide how to do it and what needs to be done. But we'll give you the parameters, but you're going to run it like yourselves. And of course, I'm sure you've talked to other people and, and some people really embrace that and some people are scared to death of it. But uh, we had some great people that said, I'm going to show you what we can do. And uh, it's been a great ride since then. It really is a point of pride for those people, isn't it? When they have committed their work life to a certain operation, they can read a balance sheet, they can hear stories, they know what's not working, and when it's not in their control, well, they go home and say, I've done what I can, but when you walk in or any new owner comes in and says, I trust you within these boundaries to do the right thing, that really can have just an exponentially greater output 
frankly, if you'd have had the place for the previous 20 years. Well, it really is, Jeff, because uh, we go into places now and say, you know, how is everything going? They go, everything's going great. And I got really kind of cocky and think, boy, we really did this thing right. And then I'd hear stories like, well, so-and-so is not doing their job or something's going wrong there. And so now I walk in and I say, uh, how's everything going? They say, oh, it's going really well. And I said, no, it's not. Come on, tell me what's really going on. And you got to win that trust with them. And uh, I said, you can call me a dummy, but I don't care. But you tell me why and and then we'll talk about it. We're going to be successful. And here's the thing. So you just tell us what you need to be successful. And we're going to try like everything to to give those tools to you. Well, and it's a matter, too, that they don't want to complain to the boss and they don't want to let on that there's a problem because it might reflect badly on them until they understand that when you say, how's it going, that's a a serious question and you'd like an accurate answer and you'll do something about it. But it does require that building of trust. Yeah, and we right up front in our initial meetings, we told each GM, we said, we know you're going to make mistakes. It's going to happen, and we want you to, because if you're not making mistakes, you're not doing anything. The one request we have is, when you make a mistake, let us know right away. It's not like the old company where somebody's going to rake you over the coals, and you're going to get fired right away and and or demoted or whatever, but you just let us know right away. We can fix mistakes, but we got to know about them, and we can't do anything about things we don't know about. And we can't fix inability to try things. Right. And so you are going to make mistakes, but we want the entrepreneurial spirit within, again, the boundaries of how, as you say, how the Tyler family runs things. Right. And a good example is during this COVID pandemic, we've asked people, how can we do things better? Here's some ideas that we have, but you tell us what's really going on in the warehouses and the facilities and tell us what you need and the the creativity of the, the employees. Once you ask them those things has been incredible. We always thought we were doing things pretty well, but we're doing things a lot better right now. Well, you have to have people who are doing it every day who can really see it and feel comfortable sharing that. Now, you're third generation, right? I am. And you've already talked about setting things up for the next generation. Talk, if you will, about how it worked because it was a family operation with brothers, and then it became your grandfather and your father, and then you're brought in. How have you handled the transitions? Because mixing business and family sometimes can lead to well, <laughs> rather quiet Thanksgiving dinners in the future. So how have you been able yeah. to make it work? I'm probably the luckiest guy alive, Jeff, because I'll go back to when my grandfather was starting his estate planning and my father had a sister. My father was in the war, came back from World War II, started working in the business. And my grandfather said, okay, I just want you to know that if something happens to me, I'm going to split the company 50-50. And my father looked at him and says, well, you know, it's your money. It's your company. You can do whatever you want with it. But if that's the way it's going to be, I'm going to go look for another job. Said my grandfather, well, you can't do that. And he goes, well, why are you going to do that? He says, well, somebody's got to be in control. So they set it up to where he was going to get 51% of the company and his sister, the 49. And so he always remembered that. And so when it came time, I was very fortunate where they made me president of the company when I was 35 years old and gave me some support and everything. But I had a father that was very uh, considerate, uh, very thoughtful on 
okay, I've been running the business for day to day and everything. I don't want to do that anymore. You do that. And I'll just meddle when I can in the policy issues. I was fortunate to have a lot of good people that I worked with and grew up with, and we ran the business together. But if there was any, any issues or whatever, I could go to him and there's not too many things that he hasn't seen before to have people that uh, are in a family situation and have the the young people say, well, now it's my turn. I'm going to run it like I want to. I just don't understand because why they don't lean on their parents. Words of advice is beyond me, but I took a full advantage of that. And I have four sisters, we're shareholders in the business. I think one of our successes was early on, once we got things in my father's estate planning process down, we started having quarterly family meetings. Everybody would show up and we would explain how the sales were, all the financials. Here's what's going on with your company that you're a shareholder of. So they couldn't come back and say, well, I didn't know that was going on. Or, and they could ask any questions. And uh, I think that was one of the highlights of one of our reasons why we have been successful in the family part. It's difficult, and I think back to your father's generation. Yeah. Because it was he and his sister, and obviously your grandfather thinks, well, I have two kids, 50-50, that makes sense, but one of them was actively involved in the business. His sister was not. <laughs> obviously, he's saying, wait a minute, I, you know, I'm doing all of this work to build up the family <laughs> business. I ought to get something for it, but that is difficult without the yep. other members of the family understanding that they may all be shareholders, but some deserve a little different consideration. And again, it just requires the conversation that too many people want to avoid because it's difficult. Oh, boy. And we went by the motto, and I'm sure you've heard it before, what's equal is not fair and what's fair is not equal. And so we've went by that. And again, I've been very fortunate to have my father still alive, that he's been able to say, okay, here's what I would like to see happen. Well, that's tremendous guiding influence because obviously it's worked pretty well. (laughs) Well, we're starting to get it down after 111 years. (laughs) There's still a few kinks to work out, but we've kind of got it down. This industry has changed drastically. (laughs) And I mean, I I think to myself that when the Tyler brothers started and they were doing different flavors of of soda, well, you've really come back full circle to that because for many years it was Coke and maybe there might have been a diet drink in there at one time or another. And now you're doing, I trust, the sports drinks. And I mean, how many different products are you actually producing out of your companies? Well, we produce all of our own soft drinks in the Atlantic plan, almost all of them. But altogether, we sell or produce about 600 different products and packages. And I tease people, I say, you know, we started out and we took plain water And we added a little coloring to it, a little fizz to it, and a little sugar to it. And we called it Coca-Cola. And then somewhere around 95 years later or whatever, we took the fizz out and we took the coloring out and we took the uh, sugar out and we called it water and we put it in a bottle. And so we really have come full circle. It is a very competitive marketplace, as I understand it. So what's the greatest challenge for you today to make sure that what you hand off to a fourth generation is able to then perpetuate into a fifth, sixth, and however many others? I think keep listening, trying to figure out where the consumer's going. You know, we've come up with all these different products and packages. It wasn't us that was saying, darn it, Jeff, you're going to drink this. 
it's the consumer telling us, hey, we want something a little sweeter. We want something with no sugar. We want something that doesn't have any fizz in it. So we're trying to follow where the consumer's going. A good example, today, the Coca-Cola company announced that they're going to get into the hard seltzer business. So it'll be the first foray for us into some kind of an alcoholic beverage. So where it goes from here, uh, we, ha- we, just, and we have to listen to the customer, the consumer, and we have to listen to the employees. But that's where branding is so important because Coca-Cola is a brand, but so is Atlantic Bottling Company. And so if I'm a, a storekeeper and I've dealt with Atlantic Bottling Company for however many generations, and you come in and say, we're now getting into the hard seltzer business, I need you to clear X number of feet of shelf space. You're trading on your reputation with that well beyond Coca-Cola and Atlanta, Georgia. Yes, that's correct. Uh, And good example of that is when we took over some of the new territories. We're very fortunate with Hy-Vee and Fairway. The managers circulate around a little bit, and we knew quite a few of them in the new territories. They knew how we serviced the customer. And once they found out, they would tell their peers, oh, you're going to really like having Atlantic call on us now. And we were very fortunate that we had those relationships. Well, you work to earn them. Well, we hope so. And we're <laughs> still working at it. They, they didn't just come. You, you, had, to, <laughs> you had to work to, to earn those. It's just a lot of fun. Uh, we like, have fun at our business and uh, looking forward to continuing it. Kirk Tyler, president of Atlantic Coca-Cola Bottling Company. We spoke via Zoom on Thursday, July 30th. Learn more about the company and its history by going to AtlanticBottling.com and on Twitter at Atlantic Coke. The Iowa Association of Business and Industry is a supporter of the Iowa Business Report, radio program, and podcast. The Iowa Business Report airs weekly on dozens of radio stations across the state of Iowa, with the podcast posted right here every week, along with additional IBR extras and IBR business profiles. I'm Jeff Stein for the Iowa Business Report.